So, so there, there we've, we've addressed, addressed manly demanding and vocational laboring. We've addressed it in decision making. And now let's go to our third main heading with the time we have available here this morning to manly dominion in spiritual living. In spiritual living. Holy aggressiveness is a blessed recipe for great achievement. It is. It says in Proverbs 12, 24, the hand of the diligent will rule. And we are to be diligent. And if we are diligent, there are great dividends. We will, generally speaking, enjoy much worldly accomplishment. I mean, look at a man like Bill Gates, Microsoft. His diligent hands have ruled. He has exercised dominion in the business field of his life. And frankly, that's a very admirable thing, man. A lot of things that you can learn from a man like Bill Gates. Yet, the Lord Jesus has said in Matthew 16, 26, what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? And what can a man give in exchange for his soul? So I don't want us to merely have manly dominion in our vocational laboring. More importantly, we need to have manly dominion in our spiritual living. I don't want a dichotomy between the two, but focus here on spiritual living because our chief earthly errand is not the pursuit of worldly success, but the pursuit of the salvation of our souls and the glory of our maker. The catechism is right. Man's chief end is not to make a billion dollars. Man's chief end, Eugene, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We've got to pursue that chief end in our spiritual living. So consider with me four issues on your notes there before we close this session. First of all, personal devotions. Personal devotions. Proverbs 4 and 23 says, Watch your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Watch your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. There's an imagery that's being used here. I believe the heart is in some ways likened to an ancient well. Now, if you lived in the arid, ancient Near East, you would know that a well is a very important commodity. If you have a well, you need to guard it, you need to maintain it. In fact, the word here in Proverbs 4.23 where it says watch in the NAS is actually guard. It's the Hebrew word shema, guard. You've got to guard your well if you're a farmer in the ancient Near East because blowing sand and debris can stop it up. A beast can fall in it, die, and putrefy your well. Or an enemy can steal your well or harm your water supply by poisoning it. There's an interesting scenario that's given in Genesis 26, 12 through 22. 
you know how Isaac is there in the promised land of Canaan. We find that whenever he sinks these wells, he sinks wells and then the Philistines come and attack and seize the well and contest the ownership of the well. So he departs from that area and he goes to another area and he sinks more wells. And when he sinks those wells, there the Philistines come again to contest the ownership of those wells. And then he moves to another area. In many ways, that is a striking picture of our spiritual lives. We need to keep the well of our heart. And there will always be Philistines there to stop up our hearts, to contest the ownership of our hearts. Enemies will seek to cause the well to become useless to hydrating us. Owen writes this, John Owen, listen. He says, Isaac digged wells, but the Philistines stopped them up. If care not be taken to keep the heart, if diligence and watchfulness be not used, our spring of obedience to God will dry up and decay. And that's the reality. We live, beloved, as children of Abraham in a hostile land. And our chief responsibility is keeping our hearts. And if we think for a minute that the keeping of our hearts is going to go uncontested, we're fools. The world and the flesh and the devil will seek to poison and stop up. See, the point is, if our hearts are to be kept fresh and pure, they will not be so kept by a passive neglect, only by an aggressive dominion. Watch your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the spring of life. There's a striking account in 2 Chronicles 26.10 where it speaks about King Uzziah. It says he loved the soil. And as a result, he, he would plant farms in different areas. And it says that in those areas he would sink wells because the ground needed to be hydrated and the flocks needed to be hydrated. But it also said he built towers. And commentators say he built towers and sunk wells because the wells were so precious. He needed to have soldiers on the towers to watch for any predators or intruders or those who would harm the wells. And that's what we must do in our lives and keeping our hearts. So, men, when we awaken early in the morning and we survey our heart's condition, we may see it stopped up with apathy or carnality. You ever find that happen in your heart? I remember, in fact, I was just in Pastor Martin's office yesterday. I remember a story he told years ago, 20, 25 years ago, how he was sitting in his office and a young man who was a new convert came into his office and he sat there in a chair looking white and guilty and he was going to confess something to Pastor Martin. And Pastor Martin said, I, I thought he was going to confess to me that he went to a whorehouse or something. But the man sat in the chair and said, Pastor Martin, I find that I don't feel like I want to pray anymore. I feel like I don't want to read my Bible anymore. And Pastor Martin, I'm sure, looked to degree, degree distressed, but he says, you know what? He says, you see those six steps that lead up into my study? How many days of the week do you think 
I just feel like I want to leap up those six steps, open my Bible, and pray to God with enthusiasm. And the young man said, three, four? Pastor Martin said, you're way high. And the point is that we cannot expect our hearts to be like the Delta faucet, that we can turn and immediately there's a gush and a flow. Our hearts are in many ways like ancient wells. And we need to consider that if we're going to have our lives hydrated, we're going to have to endure the contesting of the ownership of our hearts. It requires the holy digging of reading and meditating in the scriptures and praying. As a man in Minnesota, I had preached a sermon on the necessity to keep the heart. His response to me was, you know, Pastor Chansky, it just seems like it's such a tedious chore to keep my heart in a good condition. Exactly. We shouldn't think it otherwise as we live in a land that is full of legion Philistines. It's true that God is the ultimate keeper of our hearts. And bless God, he will not allow that river of life to ever fully dry up in the heart of a Christian. God's mercies ever flow, their thirst to assuage, our thirst to be assuaged. But the reality is that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, God works in us to will and act according to his good pleasure, but we need to work out our salvation, the keeping of our hearts. Bridges says, though the keeping of our heart is God's work, he enlists our agency. Our efforts are his instrumentality. So the upshot of all this regarding manly dominion and personal devotions is that we are not to passively permit our hearts to become stopped up, to become poisoned and just let it go and say, well, I've gone to my study, I've gone to my kitchen table in the morning, and I just haven't sensed the presence of God. I'll just close up my book and read the Wall Street Journal instead and head off to work. No, we've got to commit ourselves to being men of dominion, to seek to subdue and to rule our hearts. Because we encounter in our own devotional lives the law of the wilderness. We saw the law of the wilderness at our house when my wife decided that she was going to plot out a certain garden in the backyard. She had Norm, the neighbor, come with his rototiller. He says, you sure you want it that big? Yeah, yeah, Diane said. I want it that big. And so it was rototilled up, and Diane and my son Calvin worked on it. But then we went on a two-week vacation in late July. And after two weeks coming back, it had exploded with weeds. You see, we had experienced the law of the wilderness. And in our hearts, there's this law of the wilderness that we need to fight back and prune back and weed back the effects of indwelling sin and the world and the flesh and the devil. So may God help us in our personal devotions to be men of dominion and not just expect it to be easy, but in fact expect it to be difficult and challenging and opposed in the keeping of our hearts. Throw off this idealism. But secondly, manly dominion spiritual living in family devotions. In family devotions. I've seen a man or two wince when I mentioned how 
We've got to have dominion in our family devotions, men. It's a mandate for us. We are heads of our households. We are to aggressively cultivate the field of our family's souls. It's true that our personal garden of our heart, we need to keep it with all diligence. That's a chore that God has given to us. But men, those who are husbands and fathers, that's only the beginning of our assignment. We find that we're told in Ephesians 5, 25, we're told that husbands are to love their wives. We're to cleanse her. We're to wash her with the word so that we can present her spotless. Not just keeping our heart that we're responsible for. That's a hard thing, isn't it? To keep our wives' hearts as well. You see, as men, we've been given swarming responsibilities. We've got to quit ourselves as men. There are certain benefits to being men, and there are certain liabilities to being men. We've got to keep our wives' heart. And then, Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Or turn with me to Genesis 18. You know this passage. This really puts the screws to us, doesn't it? Genesis 18. And verse 19. Referring to Abraham, the father of the faithful. For I have chosen him, Abraham, in order that he may not just suggest, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him, to command his children. Or Deuteronomy 11, 18, impress these words of mine on your soul, teach them to your sons. You know of Job 1, how Job feared that his children had sinned, so he'd get them up out of bed, and he'd offer up burnt offerings. He would have a time of family worship with his family early in the morning. And so, men, I don't think anyone here is going to argue with me about our holy mandate to have daily family devotions. To have as a part of our abodes what's called the fireside altar. J.W. Alexander says this. Summon a family to the worship of God at stated hours, and you summon each one to a seriousness of reflection of which he might have been wholly robbed by the hurry of the day's business. See, the family altar, the family worship is a key occasion for instructing our household about the one thing needful time of soul cultivation. But so sadly, some of us can confess as we sit here in the brown benches, we can confess that, you know, in this I've been a sluggard. And what the word of the proverb said, I went by the field of the sluggard, and I saw his wall was broken down, and thistles and nettles, and this is a lesson I took, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit, and scarcity like an armed man. 
We're convicted by sluggardliness in not keeping our own houses. The rafters are sagging in our spiritual houses because we haven't been tending to them. You see, this area of family devotions can sadly be a site of much unmanly passivity. It's so hard. 2005. Things aren't getting any slower, are they? The lifestyle, the pace of life. You're a man and you have children and you find that the family rises and they head off to school and then they have athletic teams and they have jobs and the newspaper's got to be read, the dinner's got to be prepared, the homework's got to be done, the TV news has got to be watched, the computer's got to be perused, the telephone's got to be talked to, you've got to get them ready for bed and you get them in bed. And so oftentimes after a day like that, a man sits down on the sofa and realizes, I failed to grab my family by the horn. And they were running around wild in all directions. I never grabbed them by the horns early in the morning or in the evening at dinner time to summon them to worship. And he sits in the sofa and says, you know, that's my habit. Why? Because there hasn't been manly dominion in this area. I, mean, I don't know about you, but for me, the best time is dinner. I know there are some who say, no, it's right when we get up out of bed because they go off to the four winds. Okay, that's fine and well. Sometimes for me, we're at dinner, and we're about to finish, and they're going to go to the four winds after dinner, and you may want to get down and, and watch Fox News and, and to hear what the liberals are saying about Bush's response to Hurricane Katrina. It's important to get down there, right? You've got to grab your own laziness by the horns and, and say, okay, no, no, nobody leaves. Grab the Bibles. We're going to have devotions. Men, that is oftentimes the, the important, crucial moment that we will take our stand in our field of lentils and draw a harvest for righteousness from our families. We need to be men of dominion in our family devotions. Think of it this way. Think of a, a big backyard swimming pool. And you see that backyard swimming pool? If you fill it, by one barrel at a time, you need a lot of barrels to actually fill it up. Think of your children's heart and soul. Let's say you have a little baby who just popped out of the womb. You got 18, maybe 20 years when that child is going to be in your house. Now, if you would liken the spiritual capacity of that child to the outdoor swimming pool, uh, let's see. 18 to 20 years is about 7,300 times when you can deposit. 7,300 days when you can deposit uh, spiritual truth into their hearts. 7,300 days. Now, if you use all 7,300 days, by the time that they leave your home, they're going to be filled to the brim with biblical knowledge. You miss half the time. It's down to being a shallow halfway full. You miss four times. You see what I mean? Man, we need to consider how incrementally, day by day, so help us God, we're pouring spiritual depth into our children so that they won't be shallow professors leaving our homes, but God willing, deep Christians filled to the brim. So help us God. We will fill them. The Lord's got to turn it into wine, but we need to fill them. That's our 
commission to fill them with the truth of the word of God. Lord Jesus says in John 9, 4, I must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day, for night is coming when no man can work. And when I think of my first two children, and by the way, it seems like they popped out of the womb just yesterday. But now one is 20, and he's off to college. The other is 22, he's off to college, and the day is done. And my work is over. And believes me, the sunset comes well before you thought. Before you know it, it's done, and they're gone. No day like today, men, to make holy resolutions about family devotions. So we need to, again, exercise manly dominion by premeditatedly planning and delivering on family devotions. Let me just read one from J.W. Alexander on this theme. He says, and this talks about our keeping our hearts and then our ability to keep our family's hearts. If we're not hydrated, we can't hydrate them. There is no member of a household whose individual piety is of such importance to all of the rest as the father or the head. And there is no one whose soul is so directly influenced by the exercise of family worship. Where the head of a family is lukewarm or worldly, he will send the chill through the whole house. And if any happy exception occur, and one and another surpass him in faithfulness, it will be in spite of his evil example. But where the head of the family is a man of faith, of affection and zeal, consecrating all his works and life to Christ, it is very rare to find all his household otherwise minded. May the Lord enable us to keep our own hearts so that we can keep their hearts. Thirdly, thirdly, by way of manly dominion and spiritual living, churchmanship. Churchmanship. This disease of passive purple forballism, I don't know if it's more evident anywhere else than in the sphere of the church. Professing Christians' attitude toward the church, attending the church, toward worship, toward commitment, it is so passive. People, churchgoers, uh, in Christendom today, they're like tumbleweeds that blow just according to the wind of their feelings. That's what churchmanship is based on in the minds of many in Christendom today. My feelings. I come to church when I feel like it. In fact, some even have the audacity to say, I'd be a hypocrite if I didn't feel like coming and I came anyway. Oh, my. I come to church when I feel like it. I worship there at that church when it feels good, and I leave that church if I leave feeling bad and guilty. I want to go somewhere else that makes me feel good. And this is the source of the user-friendly philosophy and the church growth and the church management that basically says the church is to be crafted and conformed to an amusement park. Instead of the church being a sacred house where God dwells. And that's what many do. They try to make their church to be like a feel-good Disney world. But men, we shouldn't give in to 
the pleasure-seeking philosophy of our age. Church attendance. Fundamentally, men, we need to be there. When the doors of God's house are open and God's people are gathering, it's a priority that we would be there. Leviticus 23.3 speaks of the Sabbath being a day of holy convocation. It's the Lord's day. It's not my day. Nehemiah 10.39, when they're recovenanting with the Lord, they say, we will not neglect the house of our God. We need to make that holy resolution as well. Psalm 137 and verse 6. May my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I do not esteem Jerusalem above my chief joy. Jerusalem, where the people of God are. That needs to be a chief priority. Revelation 1 speaks of Jesus walking amidst the middle of the lampsticks. Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in my name. That's the church. There I am in the midst of the church. The church is holy ground. And that should be our perspective as churchmen. I want to be at the house of God because Christ is there. When God's people meet... There, in a profound way, like in the Old Covenant, the Shekinah glory was in the temple, in the tabernacle. The Shekinah glory, profoundly, is here in the house of God, when the people of God meet. And so, at a minimum, at a bare minimum, men, we need to resolve to be men of faithful attendance. As for me and my house, so help us God, we will be there. Be there for Sunday school. I don't know about your church, but when we join our church, we say that we will be present at the stated meetings of the church unless providentially hindered. I know a lot can fall under providential hindrances, but men, let's be men of principle and men of dominion. Some of you men wouldn't think of permitting your son to miss his soccer practice. Look, we're going to... We're going to turn the world upside down to make sure that Johnny gets to be out to kick the ball so he doesn't lose his starting position as a forward on the soccer team, right? Because soccer's an important priority. Man, I wish that some of our people in our churches would esteem the house of God as much a priority as they do the soccer field. May God give us a holy resolve to be there. Why should it be? Even that our, that our employer, I know you men, you men are hard workers. You're responsible men. When you're employed and you're said, you're told to be there on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday at a certain time, you're there. You don't let a little sniffle keep you from being there. Why weren't you at Sunday school class? We missed you. Oh, yeah, the alarm clock didn't go off. How many times has your employer put up with that? You set two alarms if the need be to make sure that you're there on time. Why should it be that our employer gets more priority than our maker and our redeemer? The Lord Jesus Christ, old Flavel says that he stood as a brass pillar. This is the way he served us. Lord Jesus stood as a brass pillar until the last breath was beaten out of his nostrils. That's the way our Savior served us. And we should serve him in kind. With all of our heart. 
that we need to be manly in being there, and then manly in worship. I know I've been preaching a long time now. I'm just about done. But these wandering thoughts, we need to subdue wandering thoughts. We need to rule our sluggishness. You look at those old covenant priests. You imagine all the sacrifice. You read about the offering at the temple when it was established and dedicated. All the hundreds and thousands of beasts that were offered up in that very warm climate of the ancient Near East. You imagine how much perspiration would pour off those old covenant priests when offering up sacrifice. Beloved, we need to be able to sweat and put out mental energy when Pastor Martin or Pastor Dunn preaches the word of God. It's not just a matter of, okay, I'm going to sit back now, spray me, Pastor. Give me, give me something that'll, that'll keep me stimulated. Oh, no, you sit on the edge of your chair, and there's this isometrics, his mind pressing against your mind. Manly dominion in worshiping the Lord. Prayer meeting, Wednesday night. I know it's hard in our culture. But we have men in our church who shut down their business and they're going to get there on Wednesday night. Their, whole th their soul thirsts to be with God. doesn't mean they always feel like they want to be there. But in principle, they've made holy resolution that they would get there. And I know Shazadi said, okay, we don't everybody jumping all over everybody in prayer and do it in an orderly way. But you know what? When we get to prayer meeting, I love it when men act like men at prayer meeting. And there aren't these long silences. I like it where she's at. I like it when men jump over each other to get to the throne of grace. Like at one of those presidential news conferences where there's a small silence and five or six reporters shout at the same time, Mr. President, Mr. President. We have an opportunity to give petition before the king. And we ought to all be leaping over each other to get there. I love it when there's a prayer meeting and men don't sit back passively in these long Pause. That's the way we need to be in the house of God. And then in serving in the house of God. Nehemiah 10 says, when they recovenanted with the Lord, it says, we shall cut and carry wood for the house of God. That was their commitment. And so we should resolve, I think, in churchmanship. I'm going to teach a Sunday school class. I'm going to play the piano. I'm going to usher. I'm going to labor in the nursery. Nursery, even Sunday school nursery. Some of the worst diapers can be found in Sunday school nursery. <laughs> Scrub floor is one of our deacons. When we were renting a private school for our church meetings, everybody else was home eating popcorn and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And this deacon was always on his floor hour after everybody left, down on the school floor, scrubbing off the tile and his scuff marks. So when the principal of that school came on Monday morning, he saw the place cleaner than when we arrived. There's a man who had a heart of service for God, washing the feet of the saints. And now lastly here, just lastly, conversion. Manly dominion and spiritual living. Conversion. Born sinners, every one of us have one chief errand in life. There are all kinds of things Bill Gates can do, and there are all kinds of things that Tom Brady can do, but all those kind of things are really irrelevant in comparison to the one chief errand, and that is to get right with God.
I don't know all the people who are here. There'll be some apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Not your profession or testimony. Maybe some apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Though you do give a Christian profession and a testimony. But you need to make sure this morning... Saturday morning that you are right with God and don't be passive in procrastinating on this issue. Do it now. Get right with God. The Lord Jesus said there in John chapter 9, I must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day for the night is coming when no man can work. The sun's going to set before you think. Let me give a little account, a parable to end this time together. Think with me of a young man. He's about 15 years old. He's a really good soccer player. And he's on a club team. And there's a big tournament that's supposed to start on Friday in Cincinnati. And this kid is such a good soccer player that he realizes if I go to that tournament, I may get... Uh, on an all-tournament team, there may be some scouts there for colleges. Man, getting to Cincinnati is a great opportunity for me and my soccer career. Well, his dad tells him Wednesday night before he goes to sleep, he says, look, tomorrow's son, let's say his name is James. James, you've got to make sure that the lawn is mowed with the old John Deere tractor. It's a big three-acre plot of land, old John Deere tractor with no light. You make sure that the lawn gets done tomorrow, Thursday, before at the crack of dawn you head off on Friday for the Cincinnati tournament. Oh, yeah, Dad, no problem. I'll take care of it, he says. So he goes to sleep. And then when it comes to Thursday morning, it's uh, 10 o'clock, and James is still in bed. And Dad swings the door open and says, 10 o'clock, James, look, I told you. You've got to make sure you mow the three acres before you head off to sit. No problem, Dad. And he rolls over and he sleeps. And it's 11 o'clock. And Dad bangs on the door again and says, James, get up, get going. You've got to get to the lawn. No problem, Dad. I'll take care of it. It's noon. Dad comes downstairs and James is playing computer games. James, I told you, you've got to get to it. One o'clock, James' friend calls and says, hey, let's go over to Bill's house. We're going to engage in a little two-on-two uh, -two basketball, and maybe we'll do something a little later. Uh, uh, the friend drives up the driveway, picks up James, and uh, James goes down the driveway and says, Hey, James, wait a minute. You've got to do the lawn. You don't do the lawn. You're not going to the tournament. No problem. Dad got plenty of time. And he goes off and plays a little two-on-two. -two. Then they go off to Wendy's and go off to Sarah's house for a little bit. And finally, finally... James' friend drives him up the driveway. Oh, it's about 8 o'clock. And as he's driving up the driveway, there is his dad standing with crossed arms. And James realized he forgot something real important. And James gets out of the car and he fires up the old John Deere. And the sun is going down in the west and James starts mowing. But after about an acre, uh, the sun has gone down. And dad had said, James... I want to make sure that that lawn is done as I always require it. No streaks. It's got to be done perfectly. If it's not done right, you don't go. So there James is out there and it's getting darker and darker. I told you the old John Deere doesn't have a light on it. And there is James out there. It's dark and dad hears at about uh, 9.45. He hears James out there. He's cussing and he's swearing. He's shouting, I can't see the lines. I can't see the lines. 
And Dad comes out, he shuts off the old deer tractor and grabs the keys and says, Look, you didn't do the job. You're not going to the tournament. It's a sad story. You see, we must do the works of him who sent us as long as it is day, for the night is coming when no command can work. The upshot is on a spiritual level. It's a sad thing when a boy misses a soccer tournament. But what a sad thing when a man made in the image of God is disqualified from heaven and he's lost for eternity. Look, it's still day. You can still see the lines. You can still think clearly on this Saturday morning in September of 05. I would spare you. I would spare you the misery of uh, maybe driving along the Passaic River here, away from this building, and you're hit, and you're thrown from your car, and you're laying on a gravel shoulder, and your lifeblood is pouring out of your ears, and out of your mouth, and out of your nostrils, and you realize you haven't done the one thing needful. And you know what? As you're laying there, you can't see. You can't think straight. You can't see the lines. Don't put yourself in that situation. As long as it is a day, do the works of him who called you because a night is coming when you won't be able to work. Have manly dominion over your soul. Do the one thing needful. Don't procrastinate. Get right with God today. Even as you're sitting here, you don't have to come forward, but just sit here and, and go to God and say like Bartimaeus, God, be merciful to me the sinner. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you drew us to your house today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to sinners. And we ask that you would forgive us of our sins. We pray that you would have heart dealings with each of us, whether this be for the first time unto salvation or the 10,000th and first time unto further sanctification. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would bring profit as a result of the preaching this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.